You know, I'm Charlie. And I'm Dan. And along with the spirit of Tom, we are three, three guys, guys from, from Albany. Albany. Yeah. All right. Thank Thank away, Dan. Thank you. So actually, we do ramble on in this stuff, but we've got a lot of things to tell you about. So uh, um, we've got interesting stories. Uh, Tom Nattel, is a, you see his photograph down there. It was one of the uh, three guys from Albany. And he was one of the people behind the poetry scene in, in Albany, New York. It started uh, about 20 years ago or so. And he ran a poetry open mic at the QE2, which is a punk rock club in Albany, on the last Monday of every month. And while he was doing that, he was also bringing in other kinds of programs. And one of the programs that he did was on a successive Saturday nights for about a month, he brought in uh, academic poets. And there would be two each night on the program, and they would read and then go their merry way. And the last night of the series were about four local poets from the open mic scene who had come up from the open mic scene. And I noticed an interesting thing that the uh, open mic poets showed up at most of those other readings. Uh, the academic poets only showed up at their own. <laughs> so um, I, I'd like to dedicate this poem that I'm going to read now to all those You know who they are. That's right. And, and they're not in this room. If you are an academic poet in this room, this is not about you. So th this poem is dedicated to all those academic poets who only show up at poetry readings when they are paid. It's called, Where Were the Professors? When Charlene opened the doors and the poets charged in, fighting for the bottom of the list, when you stood here off stage, sweating, shaking, and realized you've had too many beers already, when the podium shook and blinded by the light, you wondered, is anyone out there? And a beer bottle hits you, where were the professors? When Matt Kelly confronted the homeless and greeted the ghosts of his buddies right here on this stage. When Tanya read her poem to her father, Siobhan her poem to her mother. When Mary Panza's curses made cocks fall like dried leaves all along Central Avenue, where were the professors? When John Drucker's landlord heard him all the way across town with the microphone off, when Carl lit a candle before an icon and pondered death in his Russian soul. When Tom fashioned tiny warheads into suppositories for the generals and the politicians. And I, I called for the death of Richard Nixon. Where were the professors? When we read poems about anything, including grandchildren and the heat, when we argued on stage, off stage, along the bar, in the toilet, out the door, into the gutter until morning, and a police horse shit in our faces. When our notebooks dissolved in beer and we lost the best poem we ever wrote, <laughs> where were the professors? Thank you, thank you. Thinking ahead with what Jared had told us about this place, this reading series in the audience, I figured this is going to be people who read poetry and probably have read at least one or two Billy Collins poems. And Billy Collins is so interesting because he evokes such reactions. You know, people love him and 
he can do a book signing and they're lined up around the block. And then other poets resent, I think, that he is so popular and so loved. And that's kind of interesting. I thought, well, gee, what is he doing? So I sat down and read a whole bunch of Billy Collins poems, you know, straight through to try to figure out for myself, what is this guy doing? He's got to be pretty smart. He's not just witty, you know, and clever. He is funny, of course, if you've seen him. But, but anyway, as I figured, he is getting a lot of love. And if I could just write a Billy Collins poem, I, too, could get a lot of love. And so I'm, I'm going to start with that so we can start that process right now, early in the reading. Grateful and full of affection, my Billy Collins poem. I am standing at the window with a soft rain coming down. You will recognize Billy. As I write this line, I am reminded of the flow of things, the ink, the rain, even tears and blood, all that intense stuff poets think about. Now, I don't have a dog, but the cat has just come into the room and is busy rubbing against everything, making it her own, much the way a poem rubs against your eyes and gives new meaning to the once meaningless. I am so grateful for this notion and full of affection, I pick up the cat and kiss her full in the mouth. <laughs> it's okay to do that. I'm sure you've done something like that when no one's around. And she deserves a kiss. Without her, I'd still be standing by that window, looking at the rain, without a clue of what to do with the back part of this poem. <laughs> for the seminar afterward, I have a list of things of why it's a Billy Collins poem. But you already know. You already they already know, know Charlie. They know. Oh, they you guys know. know. <laughs> All right, I, I give up. I had, to, I had to make a change in my program because of the stuff that I heard here tonight, uh, <clears throat> these jazz poems. So um, I just, this is an old piece that I've done, uh, but I think from what I heard here tonight, you folks will appreciate it. Uh, it's called Acrostic Jazz, and it's, the title it comes from the fact that the first, uh, the first letter of each line spells out Thelonious Sphere Monk. All right, and most of you will recognize most of the words in the poem are titles of his pieces. I just strung a few little of my own words in there to string the titles together. Um, so it's a tribute to uh, Thelonious uh, Sphere Monk, um, and my one of my favorite quotes from him. He's got a lot of great quotes. Well, one of my favorite quotes is, "I put it down, you've got to pick it up." <laughs> Acrostic jazz. Trinkle tinkle, he said, is the sound his fingers make in Hackensack. And now in heaven, if there is one, evidence of his greatness, jacking around with little Rudy Tootie, off minor, somewhere in the sunset, or as he said, corpuscule with Nelly, in a blue sphere when in walked Bud, whose two hands like his four in one, listen to him, I mean you, in the brilliant corner where jazz like liquor is served straight, no chaser. Swinging like the Bemsha swing played twice on a panonica, or as he, the blue monk, said, Epistrophe is just turning beside Ruby, my dear, round midnight each Friday the 13th. Monk's mood, 
mysterioso as it is, is Monk's Point, until Oscar T, rhythming north of the sunset, says, okay, well, you needn't ask me now. Bye, ya. So I highly recommend Monk's music. You got it's 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 there. So and there's uh, a great DVD at the Lovely Library called Round Midnight. Uh, okay. Great yeah. DVD. All right, there you go. All right, so I want to do another poem about our Albany. Um, the first one I did, Where Were the Professors, was about something that happened in Albany. <clears throat> and all the people there and all the things that I talked about really did happen in Albany. Um, because when we go to other Albanies, and there are 18 of them in this country, we've been to 12, we've got six more to go. <laughs> We're getting there. Uh, it's a lot of information's on those blue pieces of paper on the table if you'd like to see that. Um, so this poem is about something that I used to see when I used to walk to work. And there was a building that had a fire, so they put up one of these plywood barriers around it. And the community quickly discovered that this made a wonderful bulletin board. And so people would come and stick up their flyers with their staple guns up there uh, for bands, for uh, poetry readings, for whatever was going on. It became a great community bulletin board. Of course, the Neighborhood Association wasn't too keen on it because it was kind of was neat and was unruly. And I, I thought their objections were sort of like what happens at the mall. Uh, is there a mall around here? Yeah. yeah. Did you know that you're never more than 20 minutes from a mall anywhere in America? No, I just made that up. <laughs> but, 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 most, but most people believe in me when I say that. Yeah, I, yeah we went through Wyoming. Uh, we drove for hours and didn't see anything. So the problem is if you go to a mall, you're going to see a sign that says something like this. This is private property. No leafleting, soliciting, handbills, petitions, etc. Violators are subject to arrest and prosecution for trespassing. This is not a mall wall. It's a wall wall, a staple-studded city wall, poster wall, rant wall, art wall. Not a don't-touch wall. It's a paint-on-it wall, write-on-it wall, paste-on-it wall. Not a mall wall, not a don't-don't-don't wall. It's a you-can-do-it wall, artist wall, anyone wall. Not a Democrat's wall, not a Republican's wall. It's a people's wall. A please do it to it wall, in the morning wall, in the night wall, earth poem wall, what's happening wall. Not a win-win, it's a wall wall. A save it wall, do it wall, paint it wall, paste it wall, mail it wall, nail it wall. It's not a mall wall, it's a wall wall. Well, now I'm gonna do a couple of road poems. And uh, I don't think about this. I've had the fortune of doing road trips all over the US and uh, Canada as well. So uh, lo and behold, I realized that one of the poems in here happened in Colorado. I thought, well, I should read that. Um, so I will. This, I'm pretty excited about it. I just got this this week. I got like two copies at my house and he mailed a, a pack of them out here to Jared's for me. Uh, so I just got this from Foothills Publication. I'm really thrilled because uh, I, I love reliving these experiences. So I'm having a lot of fun reading the poems. Road Weary. 
After 600 miles of steaming highway, I head straight for the shower, dry off and flop naked on the bed. The air conditioner blows cool up my ass. Too tired to read, there's only the typical motel movie. Not good enough to watch at home. I turn it on. It's been a good day, near perfect in fact. With that thought, I roll over, kill the light, and crash. Colonial Motel, Sterling, Colorado. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> my son and I, I considered this serious road tripping because there were no tourist attractions at all in this trip we took from Chicago up through Minnesota around Manitoba and Saskatchewan. We just wanted to see what it's like way up driving north. And uh, pretty far up as far as we got to, uh, was a town called Cranberry Portage. So after we had camped, and this was the middle of August, and it's, I think it's kind of like what you get here sometimes, the weather can, uh, so we got up in the morning and we were kind of cold, we got in the car, and the car said it was 43 degrees, so we went to town. In the Cranberry Portage coffee shop, in northern Manitoba, there is a wall of photographs. A man in rumpled coat and tie stands by an outdoor picnic table a young couple holds hands. A child plays in a sandbox. The kind of snapshots found in family albums of ordinary people doing ordinary things, technically imperfect, without precise light balance, sometimes a little out of focus. They are customers who have passed away, the waitress tells us, as she puts down our scrambled eggs and refills my coffee mug. And I am both warmed and chilled as I watch my son, who is 12, sitting casually against the wall, dig into his eggs and sausage with the healthy fervor of a boy who has spent the night in a Northwoods tent and hasn't a care in the world. Well, uh, let's see, the fourth was what, Monday? Was Monday the fourth? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was the anniversary of the uh, Kent State, the students, the four students who were killed at Kent State in 1970. Uh, I was in the Army at the time. I had been drafted in December of 69, and I wasn't around for any of the big protests that happened then. Um, I had marched in peace marches before that, and then got drafted. Uh, and. Uh, the big, the really big peace marches that happened in uh, 70, 71. I was either in the army or was working and raising a family, didn't have the money to go to Washington for the big marches. But you know, if you live long enough, you get a chance to do these things again. So back in uh, 90, 91, uh, George I uh, gave me my chance to go down to, to to Washington, D.C. Uh, to uh, protest Oil War One, and uh, this is what this is this is what I saw when I went down. I'm a member of Veterans for Peace. Uh, we have a very active chapter in Albany, New York. Um, so this is peace marchers at the Vietnam Memorial. Who would have thought on that cold December in 1969 when we met, my boots and I, that we'd be here in Washington on my birthday? 
marching against still another war. We did not think then we would stand here, older now, more worn, creased, gray showing at the fray, among other peace marchers who leave their signs on the lawn to stand before this litany of stone. 58,000 points of light etched into the blackness and now gone out, not even a flicker, unless you count those here now, those who remember, who tell their children, Vietnam, Cambodia, Kent State, Jackson State, who hug each other, who cry, who lean against the wall, find names we have not forgotten, some never even known in the worn soul of memory. When we low-crawled through that night assault exercise, we did not imagine this pilgrimage along the dusty stones of the mall in still another grim age, like when those on the wall died. It just goes on and on, from a jungle of politics to a desert of values. Kuwait, Tel Aviv, Baghdad, Fallujah. Who would have thought, when I applied those acres of black polish, I would be here to say, no, again. Like that birthday when I sat in the latrine and cried for loneliness, I don't want to have to do this. I want to go home and celebrate my birthday. We came here to wage war on war. Vermont, Albany, Boston, New York, to the wall, to weep, to stare, to murmur, hushed, as if the dead were here, as indeed they are in us, in this great crowd, that even all of them could be lost in. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? At least we, my boots and I, can still march. And when they're gone, I'll buy new boots and boots for my children and keep on marching. Come on in. Don't be shy. We have a couple of seats just for you. We do. OK. Uh, this next poem, oh, yes, it's kind of confessional. You know, I, I'm, I'm devoted. You are, too. Many of you, I know you are. You, you want to write better poems. You, know? you want to write better poems. That's so frustrating because, number one, if you do, you're not sure if you do. And you want to get better, and you're not like, what do I do to get better, exactly? Uh, and there's not exactly a guidebook or whatever, or an absolute way, but you just keep trying. So I guess this poem is a little bit about some of those kinds of things. It's called Deep Understanding. I so crave the delight of deep understanding, that piercing view into the soul of life, I want to look at an old sneaker and see the world. I want to see the unraveling shoestring as a comment on the fragility of existence. What meanings lie buried in this old black recliner with its armrest covered in duct tape? Or in the empty guitar stand? Or the phone that doesn't ring? Or the old Remington under its t-shirt dust cover on the typewriter stand? Joe Harjo said she had some horses. Well, I've got some old rock and roll record albums. Do you get my drift? Allen Ginsberg wrote about a green car. Well, my car is green and the heater doesn't work. 
I even own a red wheelbarrow, but it has a flat tire. And that is not a joke I made up, it's a fact. <laughs> William Carlos Williams said, no ideas but in things. That's all well and good, but you have to see through the things to get to the ideas. James Lachlan said that when he died, he wanted his favorite old gray sweater nailed to a tree and left there for nature and the birds. Now that he's dead, I sometimes think about that sweater. Do you get my drift? Well, I mentioned uh, my friend Tom Nattel, uh, who is really with us here tonight. We wouldn't be three guys from Albany if it wasn't for him uh, being with us, making the three guys. Uh, and one of the poetry events that he organized once was at the QE2, this punk rock club in Albany. And he had a fellow in there by the name of Bern Porter. Sort of a performance artist. Um, he had actually worked on the bomb and seen the light. <laughs> every pun intended in that, of course, uh, and decided that he wanted to get involved in art instead of building the bomb. So he was there, and he, and he, made, he said this one line that night that prompted this poem. He said, and it's, this is an old-fashioned word. Now, some of you may remember when this word was used. Physics is not a laxative. <laughs> so this poem, this poem is, is called... Physics and is dedicated to Burn Porter. Physics is not a laxative. Physics made my stereo, bounces jazz energy bands off the moon. Physics tells me how and what, but cannot tell me why. Physics can make a better saxophone, but physics, physics is, is not a laxative. laxative. Physics choreographs the angular momentum and isotopic spins, the angular dance and anti-dance of leptons and neutrinos. Physics is a dancer, but physics, physics is not a laxative. Physics named the pion, the hadron, the quark, the Z0. Physics is a poet, but physics, physics is, is not a laxative. Physics tells me that time bends and twists, tells me when to add seconds and when to take them away. Physics is only now, but physics, physics is, is not a laxative. Physics is the equation of state, is Boyle's law, Gay-Lussac's law, Maxwell's law, Avogadro's law, Ohm's law, a united nations of regulations. Physics is a politician, but Physics, Physics is, is not a laxative. Physics tells me there was nothing before there was something. Physics can't make up its mind between gravitational collapse and the heat death of the universe. Physics is a theologian, but physics, physics is, is not a laxative. Physics made the bomb, makes it bigger every year. Physics tells me I can live with plutonium at least until cancer. Physics is the grim reaper. Physics may not be a laxative, but physics sure scares the shit out of me. <laughs> hey. 
So we did, yeah, we wanted to get into the kind of the funky part of the program here. So, uh, and, yeah, the science, actually the science part too. We're going from physics. Now we're going to do, go to anatomy and physiology. Okay. So I wrote this poem a number of years ago. You can tell when I say the title how long ago. What? Well, you don't know how old I am, but you can guess. It was, it was a number of years ago. And uh, well, it's one of the pieces that we do on our Three Guys from Albany CD and on our tape that we have a few copies left for sale. Um, and uh, well, I'll just get right into it. It's self-explanatory. Uh, this is another birthday poem. This is To My Penis on our 45th birthday. <laughs> oh, glorious one, my rod and my staff, happy birthday. Oh, what great rivers have passed through you, into diapers, joyously into the air, beneath trees, into oceans, in alleyways, the great lakes, even into Homer's wine-dark Aegean Sea. What times we've had together, learning about each other, growing old. And all those shuddering passions we have lived and brought to ourselves, to others. What girls, what women, what pleasures, what pains, and the long litany of names, their tears and their sighs, my weeping. Ah, but we have dwelt in the promised land. Oh, great silent fountain and source of my children. Oh, Blake, oh, Madeline, oh, Anna, oh, Jack. And oh, the countless others without names who never were. Oh, my prick, my dong, my wang, my schlong, my cock. Oh, our great life together. May the next 45 years be just as hard. So, of course, we were like a little two-man chorus behind it instead of a one-man chorus, but that was the arrangement, the original arrangement, if you can call it that. Well, now that you brought it up, Dan, my, my other uh, recent book is called The Night We Dance with the Raylettes. I almost can't believe it, but it's true. Uh, and uh, the other things in this book are true as well. Uh, folks who are too young to know, the Raylettes sang behind Ray Charles. Those sweet ladies that did that great harmony behind Ray Charles. So these are experiences that happened in and around College Park, Maryland in the 1960s, for the most part, to the best of my recollection. That's the subtitle. <laughs> and uh, the night, and we also another archaic term, the night the rubber broke. I was making love to the love of my young life the night the rubber broke. It was a Trojan, lubricated. Until then, we always had faith in Trojans. We also watched the calendar. We were determined not to spoil the fun. The calendar was a little vague that night when the rubber broke. It mattered so much. I wrote a letter to the Young's Rubber Company. 
detailing my past faith in their products, now shattered by the broken rubber. I didn't expect a response. So I was surprised the night the regional sales rep appeared at my dorm room door. <laughs> An average looking guy in a trench coat with a salesman's briefcase. He asked if I was the guy who wrote the letter. He had the letter in the briefcase. I told him, yeah, that's me. And I told him again how under ideal conditions, a perfectly normal roll in the hay with my exquisitely lubricated girlfriend, their product had failed. There's no excuse for that. He assured me he was sorry for the failure and that the company takes these things seriously. He gave me a pack of rubbers right from the briefcase, apologized again and promised to send a sample pack of the entire line. The sample pack never came, which seemed odd since he had come to the dorm. But I didn't care. My girl had had her period. We were still going at it strong. And when word got out that the Trojan guy had paid me a personal visit, my status around the dorm quickly rose to something just a shade short of legendary. How did it really happen? I stand at your dorm door in a trench coat. Jeez. Okay. Well, there are other things besides. I did other things besides getting laid in college and going to class. There were summer jobs. There are some summer job poems in here too. One of the ones where I really learned a lot, like you want to stay in school because you don't want to sweat like this, like those old blues guys who pick cotton one day and said, "Hold on, I'm going to work on the guitar." Okay. This is in Baltimore, Maryland. Now. Some of you may have heard of humidity. They have it in the rest of the world, okay? Well, and then some parts of the rest of the world have it worse than others. So when you're there by the Chesapeake Bay, I tell people in Chicago, it's like Gary, Indiana, only like double the humidity for the summertime. So this is called Bethlehem Steel. Long-sleeved shirts, steel-toed boots, protective glasses and hard hat in summertime, Baltimore, 100 humid degrees. Walking the edge of coal fields, where buckets take two-ton bites to move coal from barge or train car to great bins or conveyors, where it travels up and over other belts and finally into blast furnaces to make the steel. Showering sparks and workmen, shadowed by molten metal, look heroic on TV screens. But what the camera never shows is sulfur stench and acid burns, hands flattened in train car couplings, broken bones from crane falls, death by crushing when someone forgets by a moment and goes down between barge and pier. Friday night, parking lot six packs and fights at neighborhood carryouts that cash the paychecks, the way coal dust won't wash out and most men's wives make them burn the clothes. All right, so this is, a, this is another birthday poem, in a way. It, it is called birthday poem. Uh, and it's also something about um, our friend Tom Nattel. Uh, when uh, he was dying of cancer, 
there was another group of poets who were organizing a new reading series in Albany, and they wanted to have it on the last Monday of the month, which in the past, that's what Tom had done at the QE2. And so they were organizing this reading at the Lark Tavern, and the first one was going to be the last Monday in January. So we, we urged Tom to, uh, we, they wanted him to be the featured poet, and he said, well, I don't know if I'm going to make it, because he knew he was dying. And we said, well, you just accept it anyways, and if you make it, you make it, and if you don't, you don't, and we'll deal with it. So, well, as it turned out, he died that morning of the night of that uh, reading. So that turned into a, a wonderful memorial reading for him. And spontaneously afterwards, we trekked out into the cold January of Albany, New York, and walked to nearby Washington Park, and there's a statue of Robert Burns where Tom had organized Poets in the Park series for many years. And just spontaneously, we took his green beret that he always wore all the time, uh, and somebody scrambled up on top of the Robert Burns statue and put his green beret up there. So every year on the last Monday of January, we have a memorial reading for him at the Lark Tavern, and we go to Washington Park and have another beret toss, is how we advertise it, because it's quite illegal to be climbing this huge statue to do that. So, so this is about this year's celebration, really. It's called Birthday, <coughs> birthday Poem. For my birthday, a friend calls across time and space, tells me there is a total eclipse tomorrow as my day begins, but not here, somewhere else across the earth. A time for things to come together, she says, the imagery obvious. It is also the new moon, the start of the lunar new year, for the Chinese, the year of the ox, to harvest, to reap what we have sown. Tonight, the Lark Tavern is filled with poets and friends and the spirits who have gone before us. We read, sing, eat, drink, kiss, laugh, gossip. It is January. The parking lot is icy. The sidewalks narrow with snow banks. The park is filled with snow. It is cold. When we leave, the Robert Burns statue wears a beret, and spring is just that much closer. As Dan mentioned, it's unusual to come to a reading in the course of an open mic to hear a couple of couple of different poems referring to jazz, uh, something that means a lot to us. And Dan plays his saxophone. Wasn't just a prop, you know, but it's hard to follow, so we put it toward the, toward the end of the program. And um, we'll be doing this uh, this poem, and then our concluding uh, three voice poem. And Jared is going to come up and help us by taking Tom's part in that. But right now I have a poem which combines two things near and dear to my heart, sex and jazz. <laughs> and this poem, but I also like to say, um, I like poetry, and, and I could say that this is also, I always like to, when I'm at a bar, so I would say, this is for the English teachers, and you'll know why. <laughs> or else, turn in your English teacher thing. <laughs> this is bad, yeah. But I think Garrison Keillor makes up, you know, about the society, and it spells out poem. Anyway, okay, this is called, Oh Yeah. Be great to get you in a feather bed in the middle of the afternoon. Fifties jazz running through my head like a pair of eager newlyweds completely unzipped, unbuttoned, undone. Be great to get you in a feather bed 
bare to the bone, nothing unsaid. Coltrane's celestial saxophone, 50s jazz running through my head. Jamming with you as the sky turns red, then dark to black, and then the moon. Be great to get you in a feather bed. Your cultured lips could wake the dead. The wedded reed beneath your tongue. 50s jazz running through my head. The familiar tune worn smooth and ragged. The sweet high wail that turns to moan. Be great to fuck you in a feather bed. 50s jazz running through my head. That poem was a very literary point of, of origination because D.M. Thomas, the guy with the White Hotel, oh, we want to run into some erotic poetry, get his poetry. Well, I am reading a book of his poems, and I come to this poem, and it's called, Be Great to Fuck You in the Dunes. And so the repeated line, I changed, I figure, you know, reading, saying fuck all the time is a little too, too in much. your face, yeah. But his thing goes that way, be great to fuck you in the dunes, da, 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 be great to fuck you in the dunes. Like, wow, he got away with that. It's a good, interesting poem. So... Yeah. So anyway, but okay. You want to give the spiel right. about how we so, end programs? Yeah. So uh, when we did the three guys from Albany program, it's a sort of a pattern that we came up with, actually from the very beginning, where we started sort of the three of us uh, cacophonously uh, reading poetry, and then we went into a, a program similar to what you've heard tonight, and then at the end we ended with a, a piece that would bring the three voices together. And what we would do is we'd give ourselves assignments to go out and write about something, and then we'd put the pieces together and figure out how to try and perform it. So Central Avenue is a main thoroughfare running through uh, Albany, New York. And so we each took our own different approaches to things that are associated with Central Avenue or on Central Avenue, and we put it together in a poem. So, um, and we've asked Jared Smith, who's been our host and uh, chauffeur uh, throughout the, this week, uh, to fill in and read the parts that were uh, Tom's parts, all right? So this piece is called... Oh, Central Avenue! And what is the name for inspiration and wherein truth divine? Central Avenue splits like a proton from the collision of Washington Avenue with Lark Street as straight as a snap line to Schenectady. Townsend Park where Washington and Central meet and the flag flies and the cheap wine flows amid the car exhaust, once called Washington Park, when current one was still a graveyard. Was there a guy known as Chicken Man because of the giant plastic chicken in his pizza shop? used his hip-riding cellular phone to call the cops on a poetry reading in the park on Central Avenue. Bingo! Thrift shop, soup kitchen, wrought iron safety doors, trash cans overflowing, panhandlers on the corner looking for quarters. We used to shake our butts to the beat of bands at Uncle Ray's club, and I'd hitchhike home out Central Avenue, occasionally stopped by state police who'd always check to see if I was wanted anywhere for anything, 
and then make me walk all the way home in early morning and light snow, and they never once offered me a ride except to the station. Where is the Villa Capri, the Embassy Club bar, the guardsman, where I necked with Elaine on her lunch hour in 1966, in the booth, in the back, in the dark? First lesbian bar I ever entered was on Central Avenue in 69, and occasionally a march against Vietnam War or poverty or prejudice would roll by headed down to the Capitol for a sprawling disrupt in the traffic rally. The beat cop walks a feathered mile, his baldy beam a-glisten, hair-triggered and happy on warehouses of heat. On Central Avenue, a funeral home is right next to the Firestone Tire Store. If you stopped there by mistake, would everything be all right? New treads, a smoother ride, a new lease on life? Oh, unredeemed bargains, oh, pawn shops of desire, who rode this red guitar in better days, whose neck this necklace, whose hair-pinned mother plinked this salty mandolin. Johnny's hot dogs once did a sociological study there on the roles of waitresses and customers at the late-night counter with its plastic squeeze bottles of ketchup and mustard while double-parked cars sat empty, lights flashing, awaiting hot dogs to go. Oh, savage leathers and ink city tattooing. Blue notes over the avenue indiscriminate valentines and heartbeats. Triple X movies at eight bucks a shot. Skateboards and weird antiques. Central Avenue fades and disappears among strip malls and car lots, hardware stores and harlots, up to the wasteland of the malls. Novels and poems eaten by the wolf of capital, the mauling beast whose appetite is cash. My father worked on Central Avenue in the 50s, selling TVs and refrigerators when the avenue was flush with business and customers, and there were no malls, and the suburbs were just beginning to percolate, and everyone had a car, and gas was cheap and the post-war economy was blasting off. From Schenectady, Central Avenue is a journey to the east. Oh, bookstores and placenta for your hair. This story is our story, oh, peasants and aristocrats. This avenue ain't nothing but a two-bit double dish, all-American wish for more. And Lawrence Ferlinghetti said to me as we looked into the archery store window at plastic target deer with replaceable vitals, you should write a Central Avenue poem. So we did. Hey, we're three guys from Albany. Dan Wilcox. Charlie Rossiter. Standing in for Tom. Jerry Smith, who you know. Thank you. Okay. 
So all right, thank you all for being here. This is really wonderful. It's such a great room. Yeah, such a great series, such a great sound system. My God, such great snacks back there. So everything's pretty damn cool. So anyway, I hope you'll stick around. We can chat about things. You can ask us questions about Albany's. Ooh. <laughs> and we do have books, but ask us because we do have mile-high discounts on things if you are interested and would like to partake of more of this. Okay, so let's do what we do next. Yeah, another big hand for three guys from Albany. Yeah.